Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer this out loud, uh, but just to think about. Is there a difference between planning and preparation? Is there a difference between planning and preparation? Well, I'm going to submit to you that there is a difference between planning and preparation. Now, I'm not talking about gaining skills, but I'm talking about the execution. And I'm going to use uh, an analogy that will inevitably break down, as all analogies do, uh, between golf and football. Golf is a lot of planning. You get up, I, I'm, I, I even hesitate to call myself a mediocre golfer because I think that's pride speaking that would call me mediocre. Uh, I have played golf in the past. Uh, and it's been probably three years since I played my last one. But, but at every hole, let's, let's don't use me as an example. My current favorite golfer is Bubba Watson. Uh, I'm not confident he plans some of the stuff he does, uh, let's be honest. But, but good major pro golfers, they plan. They know that when they step up to a, a tee box that's on a par 5, 540-yard uh, uh, hole here, or fairway, they, they have a plan. They know that it's their driver, and then they know they're going to hit that driver about however many yards they hit their driver. If you're Bubba Watson, you're knocking that sucker 385, 395 yards. So the, the next shot is an easy little chip for him, and then he's on the green, hopefully, if he's on that day, and uh, he puts it in, and he makes an eagle on a par 5. Maybe. Uh, but that's the plan, and, and probably the plan is four strokes. They, one under par, that's probably what they're playing for most of the time. But he's got a plan. Now, there are ways you have to prepare, and this is where my analogy is going to break down a little bit. There's, there are ways you have to prepare. You, you have to be aware that certain things can happen, but you can't control the wind, and you can't control something that blows across the fairway right as your ball's rolling and uh, knocks it out of the, uh, off the trajectory it was on. I watched a, a, a tournament, I think it was last year, and I don't remember where it was uh, now, um, but the winds were gusting at something like 30, 40 miles an hour, and they're trying to play golf. So, so they planned differently, right? They, they planned to hit it a certain way so the wind carries the ball, et cetera, et cetera. But there were times they would hit the ball on the green, and it would roll up there and stop, dead still. And here comes a big gust of wind, and that ball would start moving. And it would roll, and if it was the right green, there was one in particular that had a, a little uh, uh, slant to it, at a certain spot, it would roll that ball to the slant and boom, take off. And they would have been within a few feet of the hole, and now they're 30, 40 feet away. You can't plan for that. Okay, well, but they had a plan. Football, I believe, is more about preparation. There are so many more variables in football than there are in golf. Football, you, remember, we're not talking about skills. We're not talking about uh, uh, gaining those skills. We're talking about the execution of the game. In football, you got 22 guys on the field. You prepare differently. You, you have a plan, right? Uh, we're going to run the ball, run the ball, uh, run the ball, and, and if 
your less miles, run the ball, 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 right? I love less miles. I hated he got fired, that's, but, but, but he, you know, that was the plan. But you prepare because the first run might not get you anything, and the second run might move you back. And now the plan is out the window. And you've got to have guys that know, okay, that was the plan, but now we're changing the plan. We're going to do something else. Well, it's nearly impossible to have 500 different plans. So you have a plan, but you prepare for every eventuality. Maybe we do that when we're doing hurricane. What do we call it? Hurricane preparedness. Why? Because you can't plan what's going to happen in the hurricane. You can only be prepared for as many eventualities as possible. All right. The difference between planning and preparation. Again, some of you golfers are in here thinking, well, you can absolutely prepare. I get it. I know. But let's just, you know, very basic. This is the difference between planning and preparation. This morning, we're going to see the church in Antioch was prepared. Certainly, they probably had a plan, but I think the plan came after the preparation. And we're going to see the preparation this morning. Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. Acts 13 really picks up from uh, chapter 11, verse 26. Uh, Verse 27 through all of chapter 12 was a parenthesis. We we learned about Herod. We talked about that last week. Now we've gone back, we've picked up with uh, Barnabas and uh, Saul. They are back home in Antioch after taking the offering to to Jerusalem for the uh, the famine that came in the time of Claudius. And we pick up the story there, chapter 13, verse 1 of Acts. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. But after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a, fall, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was, the pro, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, that's the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stra- stared straight at Elymas and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then when he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. We're going to see a few things here as we work through this passage, but ultimately we are going to see that the uh, mission movement of the first century church, the church in Antioch, the international mission movement was birthed in worship. 
We're going to see their, their, their worship here in verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to see the result of that worship in verses 4 through 12, and we'll see some aspects of it as we move through. And then there's one overarching theme that you're going to begin to, to, to notice a pattern with as we move through it, but I'm going to let you kind of pick that up as we go along. So first we see in verses 1 through 3, we see the church at worship. And when I say at worship, I don't mean the church at church. I mean the church doing what the church does and the church worshiping. It, uh, they were, had prophets and teachers, it says, and it names all of these. The first thing we notice is they had a multi-ethnic staff at this church in Antioch. No real differentiation between prophets and teachers. They don't say which was which. You kind of get the idea that both uh, that they may have had the same uh, role. Um, each one may have had the had rather each one may have had each role at some point. There may have been one that was more of a prophet, one that was more of a teacher, uh, as we've seen with Agabus. Prophet here can mean telling the future. Teacher would be explaining the scripture. But as we move through Acts, we see uh, prophets that explain uh, Scripture, that teach, that, that speak for God, and we see that what they we see what they are doing. But we see that this was a multi-ethnic group. We got Barnabas, who we already know he was Jewish, but he was from Cyprus. Simeon, who was called Niger, his nickname was Black. Generally, not the nickname you'd want to give somebody who was black, but that was his nickname. Uh, Niger is Latin for black, so he had kind of a Latin nickname. Uh, you've got Simon of uh, uh, Simeon, I mean, rather Lucius of Cyrene, North Africa, so it's possible he was black. Look at this other fellow, Manaean. He was, uh, it says, a close friend of Herod. What that word actually means is he was probably a foster child of Herod's dad. Now, which Herod are we talking about? We are talking about the, his foster dad would have been the Herod that um, killed the babies in, Jerusalem, in, uh, in Bethlehem. His, uh, his brother, his foster brother, would have been Herod Antipas. This would be the brother, the Herod, that presided over the crucifixion of Jesus and heard the, the testimony that when Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, it would have been that Herod. Manaean grew up in that, excuse me, in that family. That's a pretty impressive family to grow up in. He was very wealthy. He was very educated. He had all the right political connections. And this is probably where we learned, or where Luke learned, the story that we just got told about Herod. We had some inside information there. So you see this staff, you see them uh, working together, and then lastly, we have Saul. So Barnabas is first, Saul is last. That's important to understand here at this moment, and, and we'll find out why toward the end. Notice what they were doing, though, verses 2 and 3, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. But then notice in verse 3, then after they had fasted. Now, this is a second time. Fasting is mentioned twice in this passage, and the first time it's mentioned for, quote, no reason. It was just a part of their worship. Now, if we fast, and that's a big capital I and a big capital F and underlined and in italics and bold print, if we fast as Baptists, when do we fast? 
in a crisis, usually. Something's going wrong, well, we, we better fast. You know, we, we've been praying some, but now we've got to really mean it, let's fast. These folks fasted as, as, a, uh, as just a regular part of their worship. It was something they did, and, and our e-group, uh, Authentic, that, uh, that I'm going through and that uh, Carrie Warren is leading, two weeks ago, uh, right, we specifically talked about fasting, and, and I, I wish I had written down all the different reasons that the Bible gives for fasting. Crisis situation is just one of them. Here we have fasting as worship. Well, why? Well, they worship here with an expectation of God's presence. Did you catch it? They worship with an expectation of God's presence. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you came this morning to worship with this body of believers, your church family, with an expectation of God's presence? They did. They expected God was going to do something in their midst every time they got together. Every time they came, they knew that he would because they had prepared. You don't fast just on Sunday morning for, for worship. They, this, this fasting was something they had been doing along. They were expecting God to do something. They were waiting on God to do something. They, they uh, were preparing themselves, and, and we could go in deep to fasting, and I'm not going to this morning, but generally, just surface of fasting, you... Uh, Deny yourself food or something so that when you crave that food or something, that your mind then is immediately turned to God, the true thing that you need. So I fast for a day or two days or whatever, and every time I get that rumbly in my tumbly, thank you Winnie the Pooh, every time I get the rumbly in my tumbly, that tells me focus on God, don't focus on food. Or if I fast from technology or I fast from other things which are acceptable fasts, then every time I crave that, when I go to that, instead I go to God. That's what they were doing. And they were doing it because they expected God to move. They expected God to show up. They were waiting for him to do something. They worshipped with an expectation of God's presence. And that's what they got. And it says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The missionaries here are called by God. The church was merely obedient. And notice, they gave away one, two, three, four, five, six, two. Is that a third? They gave away a third of their church staff. Sent one third of their church staff out to the mission field because God to, uh, told them to. Very likely sent out the most prominent, the, the best of their church staff to the mission field because the Holy Spirit told them to. And what you need to see this morning from verses 1 through 3 in the midst of all of that interesting information and I think guiding information on how we do church is that we see that foreign missions was born in worship and a prayer meeting. 
that's where it began. It did not begin in the minds of people. It didn't begin as, hey, I have a good idea. Let's go out and do this. It was the people coming together, the church coming together in fasting and in worship and in prayer, coming together, expecting God to do something. And when God spoke to them, it says, the Holy Spirit said to them, the church, the whole church knew, set apart for, Bar- for me Barnabas and Saul, the whole church knew it. Wow, this is what God is doing because the whole church was worshiping and fasting and praying. The church lay lay hands on them and they send them off. The church didn't send them. The Holy Spirit sent them. The church laid hands on them and identified with them. They didn't pass anything on through the, their laying on of hands. This was Barnabas and Saul. They had what they needed. The church came together and they laid hands on them and said, we identify with you, we uh, confess that God is calling you to this, and we, by laying our hands on you, go with you. We identify with you. You are taking the church with you as you go. And they go out. And now, verses 4 through 12 the church is on mission. The church is on, in the foreign mission field, international missions. Now, they didn't go, have to go far there to, to be international missionaries. Uh, they, we're going to see they went down to Seleucia in verse, 12, in verse 4. That was only about five miles away from Antioch, and then it was a 60-mile float to the island of Cyprus. So they didn't go very far, but nonetheless, they were on international missions, and they were obedient. So what does verse 4 show us? The verse, uh, verse 4 shows us the sender, the caller of, of people to God's work. Now, we've already seen it once. We see that the Holy Spirit said uh, in verse 2, Uh, The Holy Spirit sets them apart. But then verse 4 says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Now wait a minute. Surely the Holy Spirit told Luke wrong, right? When he told Luke what to write here. Because just right there in verse 3, just I mean literally the word right before it, the church sent them off. Well, no. The church waved as they walked away. That was the send-off. But it's the Holy Spirit that has done the sending and the calling. We, we, the, the long name, and I talked about this when we first started Acts back, to, back in 1993 or whenever it was. Um, when, I first, when we first started Acts, the title of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. But that's a bad name. Because the, the, it, it's like, uh, like saying our children... When they're playing with their, in my case, I'll say it was G.I. Joes. When I'm playing with G.I. Joes and saying, oh, look, Michael's doing the acts of the G.I. Joes. Now, if I walk away, those G.I. Joes just sit there. But when I'm playing with them, it's really the acts of what Michael's doing with the G.I. Joes. And whatever I say, whatever the game is, whatever the toys, uh, whatever the, the, the actions of the toys are, that's me. Well, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. The, 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 the tools, the, 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 the players, the pieces are the apostles and the church and, and other folks. But as we move through Acts, especially in this international missions idea, we are going to see over and over and over that it is the Holy Spirit that is doing the work. The apostles are just obedient. The church is merely obedient. The Holy Spirit is doing the work. So we would call this book more 
uh, carefully or more correctly the acts of the Holy Spirit. And then we have the missionary journeys of Paul, right? That's what we call them. This is the first missionary journey. We have begun it. There'll be a second and a third. In fact, they are the missionary journeys of the Holy Spirit. The whole book of Acts is not about what Paul did and what the church did and what uh, others did and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark and Luke and all the ones that are mentioned along the way. It's not about them. It's about God. The book, the Bible, is not about the people. It's about God. The book, the Bible, is not about you. It's about God. So when I look at the Bible, the only reason I understand it speaking to me is because I know that it's God saying something that either I am or I am not. But the book is about God, it's not about me. And we see here, verse 4, the sender, the caller, the acts of the Holy Spirit, and the missionaries, missionary journeys of the Holy Spirit. So verse 4, in this international mission idea that the Holy Spirit has put in the church of Antioch, and the Holy Spirit has called people uh, to go out and perform, we see that the Holy Spirit has given a strategy in verse 5. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in a Jewish synagogues, and it says they also had John as their assistant. This is John Mark that has come from Jerusalem. Uh, his, it was his mama's house where Peter went last week, uh, knocked on the door for a while while Rhoda, while Rhoda went back and forth saying, no, it is, no, yes, it is, it's, it, it's Peter. You know, that was John Mark's mama's house, uh, very likely, very wealthy uh, fella himself. They're going to have issues later on. We'll talk about them when we get to them. But the strategy here is to go, well, we see two strategies, really. Uh, we see that when they go to Salamis, if, if you remember back previous chapters, there have already been some believers come from Cyprus to the church in Antioch. We know that there's already a, a Christian population on the island of Cyprus long before Paul and Barnabas get there. Uh, they have actually sent out missionaries themselves. So what are Paul and Silas doing? Well, two aspects of the same strategy. At this point, on this first mission, they are going to plant seeds in fertile soil. They are going where, I love that we've gone through experiencing God because it makes the sermon so easy. They go, they're going where they have already seen what? God at work. They already know he's been there. They know that there are believers there. They are planting in fertile soil. They're going to believers. But not just that. We see the beginning. We see the actual, uh, uh, not the beginning. We see Paul's strategy throughout his missionary career. He goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And we're going to see this expressed uh, vividly uh, here in, in, a few, in, a, in a couple of chapters. Actually, uh, probably in the next... Uh, next sermon or two, he goes to the Jews first. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to where the ground is most fertile because it's really a small leap from Judaism at, at this point in, in time to Jesus the Messiah. It, 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 on paper, it's just super duper close. Well, in reality, as we see as, as Paul goes through his missionary journeys that though it looks super-duper close on paper, the gap is huge. And over and over and over, he's going to be rejected in the synagogues. And, and later and, and soon, he's going to say, you know what? I did what I was supposed to, but because y'all reject, the Gentiles get to hear it. 
That's why he's going to tell them. So he's going to plant in fertile soil. Uh, at this point, it's believers in, in Cyprus, but also to, to the believing Jews, the, 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 the devout Jews, and very likely some God-fearing Gentiles like our, uh, our friend, uh, the centurion Cornelius, who was a God-fearing Gentile. He's going to those first. So that's the strategy that the Holy Spirit has given him. Verses 6 and 8 We've seen the Holy Spirit call, and we've seen the Holy Spirit give a strategy, and now comes the opposition in verses 6 and 8. When they traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, notice they, it's 90 miles from one side to the other. So uh, he lands at Salamis, which would be on the uh, uh, western end of the island, I'm, if we're looking at that map up there. He lands at Salamis, then they travel the length of the island by foot, all the way to the other side to a town called Paphos. Notice we don't get told anything that they do other than going to the synagogues in Salamis. No, no conversions, no, no miracles, no nothing. It's just not Luke's point at this time. It's just not anything that needs to be talked about. He's, he's going for a particular instance that he needs to share. Doesn't mean nobody came to the Lord. It might mean that, but very likely it just means wasn't important to the story right now. But he does see opposition. He was, uh, when he had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish, okay, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, or son of Jesus, or in Hebrew, that would be son of Yeshua, son of salvation. That's why, how his name would break down. Interesting, right? That Paul, who has the message of salvation, is about to confront a guy, a false prophet, a Jewish false prophet, who says his name is Son of Salvation. And he's about to learn what salvation really is. But he meets him, verse 8, but Elymas, that was his other name, Elymas the sorcerer, that's the meaning of his name, it means uh, sorcerer or uh, soothsayer or something like that, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. As we take the gospel to wherever, we will face opposition. The Holy Spirit's call doesn't guarantee no obstacles. Now, that sounds like bad grammar. The Holy Spirit's call doesn't guarantee no obstacles. No, that's not the way I'm saying it. The Holy Spirit's call doesn't guarantee no obstacles. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit's call guarantees obstacles. We will face obstacles. Uh, this past week, uh, Tom and I met with a, uh, a missionary from Spain, uh, and he met with uh, some folks that are working in um, Peru. Uh, we're, we're, we're seeking where the Lord will lead us to be involved as a church, specifically in international missions uh, as our calling, not just giving to the cooperative program and that sort of thing, but us putting boots on the ground. So we're seeing where God would lead and uh, what doors he is opening, seeing where he is working. And one of the conversations that we had uh, specifically with the uh, missionary from Spain was the different obstacles you face taking the gospel into post-Christian Europe. They're different than going, say, to a non-Christian pagan or animistic country somewhere. It's just different, different issues 
there are always obstacles when you take the gospel. And the ultimate obstacle may actually be death. There is no guarantee that there won't be obstacles. But there is the guarantee. The Holy Spirit's call does guarantee the Holy Spirit's presence. There is no place we will go where the Holy Spirit hasn't been. There, or, 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 or isn't, I should say. There, we, there's no place we will go where the Holy Spirit isn't. And there was no place the Holy Spirit will tell us to go where the Holy Spirit hasn't already been preparing that place and preparing us for that place. But opposition is a guarantee. It doesn't matter our preparation or the place's preparation. If we take the gospel to a lost world, there will be opposition. And we see it. So verse 7, we see the interested. We've got the sender, the caller, we have the strategy, we have the opposition when we put that strategy into place, but then we come across the interested, the one who who wants to hear the gospel. Verse 7, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. He was interested. We don't know why. Uh, He was a, a very likely a um, from, from a prominent Roman family of the time that had ruled, led other cities. This is someone who is extremely high up. He was the ruler of the island for Rome. Uh, the Senate was the, on, the Roman Senate was the only uh, uh, authority above him. He had extreme authority, and here. Being an intelligent man, he wanted to hear the word of God. He was interested in what was happening. If the Holy Spirit has sent, called, and said, go to somewhere, and we, uh, we follow him, we are obedient to him, even though we find opposition, even though we get to somewhere and it doesn't seem like it's the right place, God has prepared the one who needs to hear the gospel. Notice in this entire passage... 12 verses, we are given the story of, as best we can tell, one convert. Five-mile trip to the port, 60-mile trip across Mediterranean waters to the island, weeks of travel across the island, the last place that they would share the gospel on the island, and as far as Luke's record is concerned, we have one convert. Well, that was just a waste of time, wasn't it? Please don't say no. Please don't say no. One soul is never a waste of time. There is no amount of money that is too much to spend on the conversion of one soul. There is no amount of time that is too much to spend on the conversion of one soul. There is no amount of effort that is too much to expend for the conversion of one soul. Whether it's one soul or not that is converted, that's all Luke tells us about. All that work for a person God loved. And that's all that matters. So we see the interested. We never know who God is working on. God was working on the heart of Sergius Paulus. We know that because the Bible is clear uh, when it tells us that no one expresses a desire to follow God. No one comes to him except the Holy Spirit draw them. 
So if Sergius Paulus was interested, it was because God was working on his heart through the Holy Spirit. So we see the interested. Verse 9, we see the power. But Saul, also called Paul, and here's the turning point for Saul's name, Paul's name. For the rest of Acts, he will be called Paul. Because for the rest of Acts, he will be going to the Gentiles. So the Paul name works better. It was his name anyway. He had a Hebrew name. He had, he had a Roman name, a, a Greek name. And that's uh, what uh, most everybody at this time had that. So it wasn't like his name got changed at conversion. We're 12, 15 years past his conversion. It was the name he chose to use because he needed that to use that name among the Gentiles. It worked better for him contextualization is what we would call that. So we see the power. Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elymas. If, if we were writing a soundtrack for this, you'd get something like... And it would be with the Spaghetti Westerns, and they'd focus in on his eyes, and uh, you'd see Clint Eastwood's eyes, and you'd see uh, 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 Lee Van Cleef's eyes, and I can't remember the name of Tuco's, uh, the actor, but you'd see his eyes, and you know, you do that for 30 minutes, going around just looking at their eyeballs, and, and, and because it was a Spaghetti Western, that's the way they made them. Uh, but that's, that's the image you get here of Paul. But, it, but it's not because he was... Uh, rough and tough and run, and, and a gunfighter and didn't take anything off anybody, Lee Van Cleef, whatever, and, and Clint Eastwood. It wasn't that. It was who was in him. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered him. But Saul, also called Paul, because he was a cantankerous old cuss, stared straight at Elymas. No. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit stared straight at Elymas. See, the gospel mission is never about what we can or can't do. I don't know if this was Paul's nature or not. It seems that he was kind of a gregarious person, outgoing personality, but still, we've not seen any sort of action from him like this. I mean, even when he was standing there uh, when Stephen was stoned, he was in the background. He was holding the coats of the ones doing the stoning. He wasn't up in the middle of it. He was the one causing it from the background. He was the one working the, uh, the contacts in the back, not the one actually doing the work. So whether he was normally like this or not really doesn't matter. The text is clear that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to worry about your ability to do or not do something because it doesn't matter what you can or can't do. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers. The gospel mission is never about what we can or can't do. So he, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elymas, verse 10, and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord. Y'all, that was not a feel-good sermon that Paul just preached. But we see in Paul the Holy Spirit controlled, the Holy Spirit empowered discernment. He knew, because of the Holy Spirit, the heart of Elymas. He didn't know it personally. 
It wasn't a, 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 a thing he was able to do. It was an empowerment by the Holy Spirit. As we are led in missions, as we are led to uh, talk to people about the gospel, as we are led to minister to people, we can and must be attuned to the people we are talking to. There is a time when we have to stand up like Paul does against a false prophet, against someone who is sowing discord. There is a time when we will come across somebody like Sergius Paulus who will be looking for the gospel, will be looking to hear from the Lord, and we will be amazed. Wow, it's this easy? We just have to share it? That's it? And then there will be times when, as Jesus told us, that we don't even need to bother. We're just throwing our pearls out before swine. We're, we're wasting our time. That is discernment that comes only from the Holy Spirit. That is something that only we can know as God leads us in that situation. It's not a judgment that we can make sitting here in the pew saying, well, we can't go to those people. They don't want to hear the gospel. No, that's not discernment. That's laziness. That's not discernment. That's disobedience. The discernment was here at this moment, looking in the eyes of Elymas, knowing what his intent was, and the Holy Spirit empowering and speaking to Paul and telling him, there's more here that you need to do than just share the gospel and walk away. And that comes with discernment. And verse 11, we see the, the result of that discernment. We see the judgment. We hear what... God did through Paul. Paul says, now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and you will not see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. That last little phrase there, proof that he was blind. The, the phrase right before it, will not see the sun for, the for a time. It's interesting. Was not struck blind forever. Did Elymas, once he got his sight back, do like Paul? Or in the midst of his blindness, convert, I want to follow this God who just made me blind? Or, or, or did, when he got his sight back, say, ha, I knew it wasn't anything major. I got my sight back. Back to my old job. We don't know. We aren't told. But we do know that the Lord's judgment is true, that, that when God says he will do something, when he speaks through us in discernment, it will happen. The judgment comes to those who oppose the message. If you oppose the gospel, you will be judged. If you fight against the gospel, uh, Paul's going to say later on, he's going to expand his testimony a little bit and tell us a little more details about what uh, Jesus told him on the road to Damascus. Paul, why do you kick against the ox goad? Why do you kick against the cattle prod? Why do you keep hurting yourself doing something stupid over and over and over when you're not going to get anywhere doing it? The pain is the judgment. He opposed the gospel, and Saul was judged, but he converted. Elymas is judged. Maybe he was too. But we see the two judgments, right? We see, one, those who oppose the message will be judged. Two, those who don't receive the message will be judged. We don't know what his conversion status was later, but what we do know is that if he did not believe the message of the gospel and did not accept Jesus Christ, his judgment was secure. He would spend an eternity in hell apart from God because he did not believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, verse 12 shows us what happens when we do. 
Then, when he saw what, what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. We see the belief. We see the discernment, the judgment, and in the judgment, the rejection. And then we see the belief of Sergius Paulus. And maybe it's not who we expect that comes to the gospel, that comes to Jesus, that believes the gospel. Maybe we're amazed at some of the people in our lives who've accepted Christ. I, I had that happen to me. Uh, I was, uh, when I was a college student in Baton Rouge, I uh, worked at a Christian bookstore in town. And one day, a guy who was a year ahead of me in high school showed up at the bookstore to buy something. I couldn't tell you what he could buy. I, I can't tell you anything about that. I could tell you his first name. I can't remember his last name now, but I can remember what I said when he showed up at the counter. You're about the last person I expected to see in here. Wasn't that holy of me? That was my gut reaction. He just smiled because, I mean, I knew this guy in high school. Christian Bookstore was the last place you expected him to be. And here he was. It's not who we expect sometimes that gets saved. It's not who we expect to believe the gospel. If, if, if Luke had told us and he went through the towns and some of the folks in the synagogues believed and a few Gentiles believed, etc., etc., we'd be like, oh yeah, sounds kind of like Paul, right? But he gets to the highest person on the island, the most powerful person on the island, and he believes. And what does it say he believes? It says he believes the teaching. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now I guarantee you he was astonished at the miracle, and that was probably what pushed him over the edge. But what Luke tells us is that he was astonished at the teaching. The gospel is powerful. We don't give it the credit it's due. We think it's about us. We think it's about our delivery. I think it's about my delivery. I think it's about my relationship with that person. I think it's about how well I present it or, don't, or poorly I, I present it. And it's not. It's about the power of the gospel and the working of the Holy Spirit. We don't know what God had been doing with Sergius Paulus up to this point, but clearly he had prepared him to hear the message Paul had to bring him. That person you come across next week and wherever you may be, you don't know what God has been doing in that person's heart up to that point. They may be this close to, to accepting Jesus Christ because they saw somebody on TV and they got something in the mail and they had a family member who died and they heard the gospel at the funeral, at least they should have, and, and now they're wondering, how can I have what those family members have? And they just don't know who to ask. And you show up and the Lord says, talk to that person about the gospel. And you say, no they might reject me no they might not like me no it might make me uncomfortable and the Holy Spirit says you don't know where they are and we say okay and you say can I share you about with you about Jesus and they say I've been wanting somebody to tell me it's not who we would expect it's not when we expect they expect it to be the last person as far as we know they talked to before they left the island we don't know but it's in the conversations. It's in, it, did, did, he, did Paul expect that Sergius Pallas would believe because of the miracle and because of the judgment on Elemas? We don't know. But we don't know. So we share the gospel, and it's not how we expect. Paul probably had his plan, right? 
Go back to the planning he had. Well, I'm going to go and I'm going to share the gospel in this way with these people. And, and, and if they, those people reject it, then I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to share the gospel. And if they reject I'm going to go to this place. And he had shown up here and he had this problem with Elymas. There was an objection. There was an obstruction to the gospel. And he could have said, well, it's not working out. Uh, it's not working out the way I wanted it to, but then the Lord gave him discernment to speak to Elymas and tell him, step back, you are not going to interfere with, the, with what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. And he uh, shares the gospel with Sergius Paulus, and he gets saved because it just didn't go the way he expected. What's Luke doing in this passage? Twelve verses, a lot of information. What we need to see this morning, and maybe you've caught on, the Holy Spirit is in charge. The Holy Spirit has not let his church go, and he will not. The Holy Spirit has not left his people, and he will not. The Holy Spirit has not departed the hearts of believers, and he will not. The Holy Spirit is who is in charge. So what do we do? We come together and we worship with expectation. What is God going to do? And does that mean we pray all week? Yeah. Does that mean we fast during the week in preparation? Yeah. Does that mean we go through the other disciplines, which is about, which is what our, our study on Sunday nights, the one we're in, our e-group, is all about, the, the disciplines of the faith? Yes. Worship and prayer and Bible study and, and fellowship and, and fasting are all parts of us preparing and expecting God to do something in here in this hour and 15-ish minutes. But not just in here in this hour and 15-ish minutes, but every day, every moment of the day. This wasn't in a worship service. Paul got called to court. We worship with expectation. We see that the Holy Spirit does the sending. The Holy Spirit does the guiding. The Holy Spirit does the calling. He sends us where we need to be. The Holy Spirit does the leading. When it's time, when we are where we are supposed to be, then He leads us in what to say, and He leads us in who to talk to. It's the Holy Spirit that does the doing. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work that allows us to just be a part of it. We are just the G.I. Joes on the, on the floor as the kid plays. The G.I. Joes have no life of their own. They're posed, they're put into positions by the, by the kid playing. We don't have a kid playing with us. We have the Lord leading us through His Holy Spirit, and He is the one that does the doing. And it's not about you, because it's the Holy Spirit that does the drawing. It's not your words. It's not your abilities, it's the gospel. It is the, the very words, believe on Jesus and you will be saved. It's also no, not up to you to save. The Lord will draw, and I believe the person can reject. That's not up to you either. It's not up to you to save them. It's not up to you to clean them. It's not up to you to prepare them. It's merely up to you to share the gospel. The Holy Spirit the Lord does the saving. We do the obedience. When the Holy Spirit calls, sins, sets apart. If it's us being called, we go. If it's someone among us being called, we send. We identify with them. We pray for them. We do this all beginning with worship.
not beginning in worship, though certainly that's a part of it, but beginning in worship, turning to the Lord. See, worship births not just missions, but worship births believers. When we have someone who comes to our church on a Sunday morning, stumbles in, straggles in, comes boldly in, no desire for the gospel. Or just questioning, what is this gospel? Our worship is an influence on whether they will respond to the gospel or not. Do they look around and see people who are worshiping? Do they look around and see people who are going through motions? Worship births believers. We present to people the God that we worship by the way we worship. So they come in, and, and maybe you're like that this morning, and I don't know what you've seen or felt as, as we've worshiped today, but I, I can tell you since you're here and you haven't trusted Christ that, that our worship service today can birth a new believer in you. It's not our work, of course. It's not anything that we do that saves you. It's you that responds to the gospel. The gospel is that you must admit that you're a sinner and ask God to forgive you. Because you are a sinner, and God's the only one that can forgive you, and he will only forgive you through Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus is the perfect son of God who died for your sins, you will be saved. That's the way it works. God, I'm a sinner, and I know I can't do anything about that, so I believe that your son can do that. And then you choose to follow him. Choose to follow him by giving him your life, and you live for him. And it's no longer my life. It's no longer me that chooses whether I go to church or be a missionary or whatever, but it's, uh, it's you responding to the Holy Spirit, as we saw this morning in Paul's life. And then you follow. You go where he sends. You do what he says. And you live a life of obedience. And you'll have that opportunity in just a few minutes if you've not done that yet. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for the example of Paul, of Barnabas, of so many others that have gone before us. Lord, thank you that your Holy Spirit is working in us. Lord, may we be an example through our worship. May we be a witness through our worship. And may we trust your Holy Spirit in every way. God, may we understand, leave here today, that your Holy Spirit is in charge. You, that is what indwells us and lives within us and guides us to all truth and explains things and prays for us and, and gives us the words when we don't know what words to speak. The Holy Spirit does the drawing. The Lord, you, 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 you save because of the work of your Holy Spirit. It's just not about us, God. Let us know that. And let us put our faith in you, Lord. And may your Holy Spirit work mightily in this place this morning. And if there's somebody who has worshipped this morning, but they don't really know what they've worshipped. They, they don't know if their, song, their, their voice has gotten above the ceiling. They, Lord, they, they want to know that they have a relationship with you through your Son. I pray that they would come this morning and get that straightened out in their lives. Sit at their, uh, stand at their pew now and, and, and do that. And God, we pray for a mighty work of your Spirit. God, I pray that our believers, that we would, we would follow we would be obedient. We would begin in worship. We would end in worship. And we would sandwich obedience between that worship. God, work in your church in your way as we know you're going to and as we know you want to. And may we be receptive to what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Not only does worship birth believers, but believing births worshipers. You can, you, you can be a true worshiper of Jesus this morning. Trust him. Give your heart to him. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to be baptized. You need to join our church. You want to kind of make that public and then come to the discovery class next week. Uh, whatever your decision is this morning, our praise team is going to lead us. We're going to sing. And as you stand with me and us, and we sing, you do business with God this morning. <laughs>